Let's turn to Genesis. We're going to look at Genesis chapter 6, chapter 5 too. So on October, no, on December 26, 2004, there was a nine-point magnitude earthquake that shook the Indian Ocean off the coast of Sumatra. It was the most powerful earthquake in 40 years. It had the energy of 23,000 Hiroshima-type atomic bombs. Can you imagine? It split the ocean floor for 600 miles. It displaced trillions and trillions of tons of rocks. When this happened, it displaced an enormous amount of water that turned into massive killer waves called tsunamis. These tsunamis went uh, almost around the world. Literally, one went 300,000 miles to Africa. Witnesses reported that before they hit, uh, animals fled for a high ground minutes before impact. It was also reported that the sea uh, just weirdly um, disappeared. <laughs> it went out to sea, and the ocean floor was exposed. And it was such a shocking experience that so many folks were just wandering out there to take a look at it. And then witnesses say when the waves rolled in, the wall of waves, that the sound, the sound was deafening. They say it was like the earth was ripping literally in half. 280,000 people lost their lives in that tsunami. Experts say it is the sixth deadliest natural disaster in the history of the world. Today, we look at number one. The number one disaster in the world, and we're asked to be witnesses just before it happens that we get to watch the animals head for high ground. We get to watch the sea mysteriously withdraw on itself just before impact. So please stand for the hearing of God's word. Our reading today is Genesis 5, 1 through 5, and 6, 1 through 8. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness, after his image, and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. Chapter 6. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. 
The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart were only, was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. So, Lord, we, um, we ask that you would fill us with your spirit. We ask that you would be the strength of our heart, that you would give clarity to our minds, realness to our heart, uh, shine on the page. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so this morning we're called to be witnesses of a lost world, a dead world. You see that? Do you know that Genesis 4 through 6, 8 uh, is the longest time period in human history? The longest. Like the United States has only been around for how many years? 200? 200 plus and some change? Well, Adam at the age of 200 was just beginning. It was like he was, an, it was, like he was a teenager. He only had his third child at 130 years. And think about it this way. He lived 930 years. Do you know the Reformation feels like it was just before the dinosaurs, doesn't it? That was 500 years ago. Calvin and Luther. Adam uh, doubles the Reformation. Methuselah was the grandfather of Noah, and he lived 969 years. That's almost as long as the Roman Empire. (laughs) Isn't that unbelievable? So this is the longest time period. Genesis 4 through Genesis 6, 8 covers the longest time period in human history, and yet it only covers two and a quarter chapters in the Bible. I mean, so little is said about that time period. And not only that, what is said is just kind of weird. Like, they were born, they fathered so-and-so, and they died. That's it. So why are we asked to look at this lost world. Why is this lost world recorded here? What's its purpose for you and me? Why does God want to make us watch just before the waves hit? What does he want you and me to see? What does he want this passage to do to us? Here's the answer. God wants us to know why the world was lost. Why was it lost? Part of the answer has to do with the sons of God and the Nephilim. (laughs) Now, I have tried and tried and tried to do everything I could to get around not talking about the sons of God and the Nephilim. But we're going to, so I promise I'm going to address them. So just give me a moment first to get to the point before we get distracted by that, whatever that is. Uh, Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard wrote a little book called The Sickness Unto Death in 1849. In it, he said, sin is in despair of not wanting to be yourself before God. Sin, or faith, is the self being itself before God and building itself around God. In other words, sin is seeking to become yourself and to find an identity apart from God. Do you get that? Sin is seeking to become yourself to find yourself apart from God. 
So Kierkegaard is saying that human beings were not made to believe in God in a general way, but they were made to trust in God intimately, personally, to build your identity, your very self around him, to love him supremely, and anything other than that is sin. I want you to look at verse 2. The sons of God saw, do you see that? What did they see? They saw something good, and then what happened? They saw something good, and they took it. Does this sound familiar? This goes all the way back to what we looked at in Adam and Eve, that they saw it was good, and they took. And so we get a picture of what theologians call original sin. So Adam and Eve were seeking to become themselves. Adam and Eve were seeking to build an identity apart from God, just like the sons of God. Ancient theologians call this a God complex trying to be more than you are. This is why the children of the sons of God are called the Nephilim. So let's go there. The Nephilim are giants. There were mighty men of old, men of renown. Literally, it says they were men of the name. They were famous men. These were men. These were people. The whole world was populated with people that had a God complex. They were looking to become themselves Apart from God, they were looking and trying to be more than themselves. So before we get to the identity, we have to look at the specific identity of who these folks are. But before we do, y'all, please hear the point. The point is, is that original sin multiplied at this particular place before the first greatest tragedy on the list of human history hits was a world full of folks with a God complex. People addicted to themselves, trying to be more than themselves. So naked and so ashamed that they were fearful of being less than themselves. So it was either a pride or a superiority like the Nephilim, but then it manifests itself in inferiority and insecurity, just like Luther before he found the gospel. Luther says that he would, he would confess his sins and then he would have this voice in the back of his head say, you didn't do it good enough. He says you would, he would try to love somebody and there would always be this, well, you were still selfish there. Whether it's a radical insecurity and inferiority or a radical superiority and you're a Nephilim, the God complex is all over human history. All right, so who are these folks? Well, there are three acceptable options, so we're going to look at the three real quick. We're going to blast through them. I'm actually going to hide behind scholars so I don't have to say anything about who these folks are, and I'll tell you my opinion at the end, so we'll have a drum roll when we get there. Here, sons of God could be angels. This is actually the oldest interpretation. This one goes all the way back to Jewish, ancient Jewish history and the early church. It's also the most textually supported Angels, sons of God, are only angels in the Bible. And then there's Jude, and there's First and Second Peter that seems to say that that's what they were. So you get a guy named Derek Kidner, who's everybody's favorite conservative scholar, and he says, possible New Testament support for angels may be seen in First Peter 3, 19-20, 2 Peter 2, whatever, were the fallen angels. <laughs> the flood and the doom of Sodom form a series that could be based on Genesis. And in Jude 6, where the angel's offense is that they left their proper habitation. 
The craving of demons for a body evident in the Gospels at least offers some parallel to this text. Okay, that's one. Here's Bruce Walkie. He's like the, he's the scholar scholar. And he says the view that angels had sexual relations with mortals is extremely ancient. This interpretation was held in the early apocalyptic literature, Judaism, and the early church fathers. This interpretation probably informs 1 Peter, 2 Peter, and Jude. These heroes, their offspring called the Nephilim, may provide the historical base behind the accounts of semi-divine heroes such as Gilgameth of mythology. Instead of the Bible representing myth as history, maybe it's the other way around, that the myths were just transcribing history. Wow. Now we're talking like the pantheons. Maybe that's where all that stuff came from. It wasn't generating myth. It was myth generated from history. Okay, that freaks everybody out. So scholar Tremper Longman says, no Israelite Jewish reader would have thought that angels were incapable of sexual intercourse. Oh, do you feel my pain? This is what I have to do every week. Yes, they are spiritual beings, but they are capable of taking on human appearance. See Genesis 18, 19, Mark 16. The opposite idea is not a biblical one, that they can't take human appearance. He says that that's the one that was produced in the Middle Ages. When Christian thinkers were influenced by Neoplatonic philosophy that radically separated the spiritual from the material. <laughs> Plus, the book of Jude understood it this way. Okay, so that's number one. That's, that's your first option. Number two is the sons of God could be tyrant rulers. All right? Uh, this means that these rulers wanted to make themselves out to be divine kings. In other words, these rulers made themselves out to be God. And they took a harem. This is when polygamy starts. And they were, uh, they, their violent offspring, Klein says, were characterized by physical might and military dominance. All right, now this is the view I used to hold. Until I realized that sons of God, it would be the first time that sons of God in the Bible did not mean angels. And then I read Jude. <laughs> and then I read First and Second Peter. Okay, now here's the last acceptable view. The sons of God could be demonized rulers, demon-possessed rulers. This would be of the image of Revelation when it talks about demonically energized rulers or the state is like the mark of the beast. Now, we've never seen stuff like that in history, have we? So, one scholar says this way, the best solution is to combine the angelic interpretation with the divine king view. The tyrants were demon-possessed. The text presents us with men who were controlled by fallen angels, end quote. So there you have it. Make your choice. Angels, tyrant rulers, demonized tyrants. I go with angels or demonized tyrants. That's what I go with. So why was this world lost? Well, part of it had to do with the Nephilim, the sons of God. The other part has to do with the human heart. Did you see that? Look at verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man... Now, notice man is mentioned here. So, no, even if the angels were a part of the mess, man is still the mess. Do you see that? So notice that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and every intention of the thoughts of his heart were evil continually. The meaning here is absolutely shocking. 
if the first part talked about the hideousness of sin, a God complex, this part talks about the hiddenness of sin. In other words, that every, when, when our heart works, when it starts to express an intention, whether it's in the form of a thought or it comes out in the shape of a feeling or it comes out in a faculty of inclination and desire, it's evil. Every single one of them, only, continually, all the time. So this is comprehensively self-absorption. The sons of God reveal the hideousness, the God complex. This is why we need to control our lives. This is why we're incredibly anxious people. This is why we envy others. This is why we must win. This is why we must win the girl. We must win the relationship, get the promotion, get the recognition. This is why we try to control our children. This is why we try to control our reputation. We have a God complex. It's hideous. We are striving to be more than we are. But this is also why the hiddenness of sin that's deep in our being, this is why we focus on bad behavior and not our heart. This is why we're all consumed with spiritual moral lists and laws that are keepable and manageable and choosable to pretend we're better than we are, right? But then sometimes what's hidden comes out. And we don't know what to do. It's almost like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. It takes a potion to reveal who we really are. And sometimes the potion that reveals the hidden hideousness of our hearts is a bad marriage. Sometimes the potion is a child. Sometimes the potion is something in our career, or it's a bad situation or a circumstance. Richard Lovelace, who's an expert on spiritual renewal, says, there is no genuine healing in our lives apart from understanding the hiddenness of sin in the heart. And this is interesting. He says, quote, many American congregations, most in fact, pay their pastors to protect them from this. He is saying that most, that most of the ways we interact in our life is that we're trying to protect ourselves from the hiddenness of sin in our heart. And what's happening here is we're made to be eyewitnesses of it. We're made to sit there before the flood hits and see the hideousness, the God complex, to see the hiddenness that is deep, deep in the heart, a heart you cannot change, and a heart that when it, it thinks it's self-absorbed, when it feels it's self-absorbed, when it intends and desires and wills it's self-absorbed, that every, only, always, continually, we're self-absorbed. So why was the world lost? The answer is really straightforward, and it's, it's pretty breathtaking. Because sin, its hideousness, and its hiddenness, only and always decreates the world. If Paul was here, he'd say, look, the wages, what sin does, its very nature, is always and only death. So why the flood? Of course it's the flood. 
because sin does nothing more than revert creation back to the watery chaos before it began. So, of course, there's a flood. That's what sin does. Sin only and always ends with a watery death. And God wants us to see that. He wants us to sit there and see that sin cannot be rehabilitated. He wants us to see that sin cannot be counseled. It cannot undergo therapy. Sin cannot improve. Sin can only be destroyed. Which makes verse 8 absolutely strange. Let's look at it together. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. That but tells you this is absolutely, incredibly unexpected. That in the midst of the hideousness of sin, sons of God and Nephilim, in the midst of the hiddenness of sin, absolute deep depth realities of brokenness, God loves a hideous hidden sinner. Several years ago, Nancy and I did a, went to New York because I was doing a wedding, Carrie Ann Kaworth's wedding. And one of our goals was to go to ground zero of the Twin Towers, where it all began with 9-11. So after the wedding, we had a couple of days that Kaworth graciously allowed us to stay and explore New York City. So we started the Statue of Liberty with our little map. First of all, I hate maps. Nancy loves them, so we're a perfect combination. Off we went, Nancy with her nose in the map, and me pointing this way and that, saying, it's over here, follow me, right? And saying things like, honey, honey, don't worry about the details of street names. It's over here, let's go, right? Yeah. Okay, well, eventually we rounded the corner, still arguing about which way to go, and then we saw it. And we didn't need a map. Nancy starts crying. I couldn't speak. When we get to verse 8, it's ground zero. It's ground zero of an unexpected grace. And looking at verse 8, it is meant to overwhelm you. It is meant to love you. It is meant to calm you. It is meant to forgive you. It is meant to accept you. It is meant to heal you. It is meant to give peace to you and to the world. It's ground zero of the grace of God. But you and I know there's still a huge hole in this text. It's almost like everything's falling through it right now, even as I say it. 
Because you and I know we still can't get out of verse 6. We still can't get out of the fact that how can a holy God who was sorry that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart, how can a holy God have favor on sinners? How can a holy God accept a hideous, hidden sinner like Noah? Please don't forget that after the first thing we see of Noah, after his great triumphant being hidden in the ark, as he gets drunk, he gets naked, and gets exposed by his whole family. So don't make any mistakes as if Noah was this uncommon righteous man amongst the sea of Nephilim and sons of God and hideousness and hidden sinners. He is one of them. He is us. So how does God accept him? And as we're there watching this, the text is saying, God is saying to you and me, how does he accept you? How does that happen? Do you know that grieved in the Hebrew is the most intense form of human emotion there is? This is the most intense form. When God says he was grieved, it is the most intense form of human emotion to express the heart of God. And it means literally a mixture, a combination between rage and pain. It's the same word used when Dina's, when Dina is raped and her brothers see her. And they find out, and it says they were filled with grief, rage, and pain. The picture here is God watching the world that he loves get raped by sin. So how does he love a sinner? How does he accept a sinner? The structure of Genesis 5, if you were to look at the structure, notice it's a genealogy. Remember, hardly anything said. They lived, they fathered so-and-so, they died. Except there's a break twice of the pattern. One's a guy named Enoch, and it says that he didn't die. That's weird. And the other's a guy named Noah, or Lamech, who names his son, whose name is Noah. And Noah means literally, this is the one that will reverse the curse. Lamech thinks, like Eve thought, that his son, like she thought her son, Cain, was the Messiah. Well, Lamech was close. Because what's happening in the structure of Genesis 5, what's happening in the structure of Genesis 6, is that the line that's running through Seth and the line, the family line that's running through Cain, even through the Nephilim, even through the sons of God, are all zeroing in and all coming to one verse, one man, Noah. One man. Everything hangs on one man. One man saves the world. But Noah saves the world by being hidden safely in the ark from the flood. The one man Jesus saves the world by hiding you and me safely in the ark 
while he steps outside and faces the flood. Jesus is decreated in our place. Jesus absorbs the wages of sin, not in part, but in whole. The hideousness of it and the hiddenness of it was leveled and placed on this one man, Jesus, and on the cross, all the forces of the greatest disaster in the history of the cosmos was unleashed on him. And he decreated. Let him overwhelm you. Let him calm you. Let him love you. Let him heal you. Let him put you back together again. Let him restore you with peace. And not just you individually, but your relationships, your marriage, your parenting, the way you relate to your career, 